I'm really pleased to be here with Dr. Daniel Cameron, MD, who is the author of An Expert's Guide on Navigating Lyme Disease, just a fascinating book about how to understand it, how to navigate it from both the perspective of a patient and a doctor. One of the things that I think is so important about this is to recognize what a huge issue this is in the United States. I think a lot of people don't know. But what I'd like to do is start with kind of how you got involved in this and and a little bit about your background. And thanks for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, I started out um, not having a clue that I was going to be a doctor. I was on a farm in Minnesota. Then I medicine worked out for me, uh, and I thought geriatrics would be my career. So I ended up out here in New York from Minnesota, and uh, I've spent my entire career transitioning from geriatrics to Lyme. And so all of a sudden, instead of being new to Lyme, I've been at it for 35 years and, uh, and you know, have enjoyed working. But as soon as that day is done, I enjoy communicating, writing, uh, getting to know video and those kind of things. It's just a, it's just a way to kind of express uh, what I've been doing in my practice. How did you become involved with Lyme? What was it that, that was kind of the catalyst for this? Well, I, I think, um, like with everyone else, um, I had a patient. And actually, I had three patients in 1987. I was young. Uh, I was working so hard to try to figure out what was wrong, why they were sick. Uh, I'd sent them to specialists. They weren't getting anywhere. And, and I'd just have them come back because I was in primary care. And over that year, working with those three, I really got to know Lyme disease. I, I I didn't find much published at the time. Um, I didn't uh, get a chance to go to conferences much the first year because uh, I was in practice. But just like all of us that start, is that one patient uh, is really uh, all you need to start with. And and with the the patient, or, or as it turned out, three patients, what was it that you saw that intrigued you and th and and got you to a place where you're like, I need to spend more time on this. Like there must have been something about the disease in particular, the symptoms, something that really intrigued you. Well, I I like geriatrics at the start. You know, the complexity of cases, the psychiatric art part, the uh, the chronicity, the challenges of trying to get the right care for someone in geriatrics. And I also was a specialist in Alzheimer's and and delirium, acute confusional state. And so they were on the elderly side, which was fascinating. Now I found the same issues in people that were so young uh, that it was hard to believe that it could be uh, anything, uh, anything that I'd ever seen before. And so as I got to know Lyme patients, I realized that I, I had the same challenges of what's going on in their neuropsych status, what's going on uh, with the chronicity, the, the fight to get better, they're ignored, uh, somewhat the same way as the geriatric patient was at the time. Now geriatrics is catching up. You know, patients are expecting more, but uh, Lyme is still a catch up. You know, patients still are confused, get distracted, 
um, they don't get the care they need. And so there are doctors out there, but uh, there are other doctors who, who are still uh, uh, finding it difficult to get to understand Lyme disease. Talk about the state of Lyme disease. I think uh, in terms of how big of an issue it is in the United States and its growth. Well, we're often dependent on doctors filling out forms. You know, they send the forms to the CDC and the CDC counts. So they were getting maybe 40,000 forms a year, which still is a substantial number. But they realize doctors are kind of tired of filling out forms and filling out insurance forms is enough. So they estimated that there were at least 300,000 cases a year. And that's a pretty conservative where they pay attention to more of the rash. Uh, there's just, it's grown to 450,000 and that's what they count. And that's a pretty sizable number of uh, people who um, are out there. So I just see uh, the tip of the iceberg. My colleagues are seeing the tip of the iceberg. There's still a lot of doctors out there treating Lyme, but um, there's plenty of challenges. Uh, so I try to write, try to talk, uh, try to get uh, doctors to make that transition from uh, uh, dismissive um, an approach or just ignoring approach to embrace uh, this kind of patient and, and take it on. And they're missing the joy of taking someone who's that sick and getting them better. When I think about what you've said, when I think about the videos that I've watched of you <clears throat> talking about Lyme disease, it seems to me like this is really a two-prong issue. One is the patient. How do I take care of the patient and get them better? But prior to that is, and it sounds like from your standpoint, almost the as big of a problem is getting doctors to recognize it and to diagnose it properly. Is that correct? Yeah, I think you identified it really well. You know, I concentrate a lot on patients so they get to understand it. They can try to get through it. I write my blogs targeted for them, them to understand it. You know, the doctors often have been reluctant to take it on, but I keep setting stones out, you know, setting the stage you know, 600 blocks later, uh, there's an awful lot of um, topics I've covered. And so I was also hoping that doctors, when they find a patient, that one patient that they start with, that they'll Google, they'll find, oh, that case he's talking about was published. That case is in the literature. Um, you know, I'm an internist, but I'm an epidemiologist, so I can bring that research article right into the living room of a doctor who's taking care of that patient, whether the patient brings it to the doctor or the doctor runs into it during a search, is I wanna be at the table to at least discuss this perspective and, and how to recognize a Lyme patient, how to accept the Lyme patient, how to understand it. But yeah, the first thought you had is, is patients themselves don't always go uh, to the doctor. When you think about what doctors need to do in order to be more aware, if I think about the 600 articles that you've written. Are there 
a certain number, five or six things that you think doctors need to be thinking of on a regular basis to really recognize when they've got a Lyme patient? Um, that's challenging because um, doctors are so used to habits, uh, protocols, and uh, and they're used to, um, you know, criticizing each other if they treat Lyme disease or if they even diagnose Lyme disease. And so how do you get those doctors to um, to take the take on that and be bold that uh, type of treatment? But when when a doctor is ready, it's um, and I'm, I'm sure they're seeing patients. Um, this particular uh, blogs, this book I'm I'm uh, publishing tries to um, get the doctors a few tools to understand where that patient's coming from where the literature is, um, what the controversy is, and so they can start communicating with each other. You know, that, that there's so many things that have been published now on Lyme disease that uh, this book will give a quick study on uh, many of the topics uh, that I've uh, seen and written about. You know, a lot of great research out there, but the, the doctors, uh, may not uh, have it when they're ready to take on a case. So one of the things that you've pointed out and that I've seen in, in doing some background on this is that there's a huge divide between doctors about the, the treatment of Lyme disease. Can you sum that up in uh, a few paragraphs? Well, I think at the beginning, there were a few doctors who did a great job at understanding Lyme disease, started publishing papers. They, they realized, hey, that's not arthritis. That's not juvenile arthritis, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. It, it's, it's an infection. So at first, you know, they weren't sure if it was a virus uh, or bacteria, um, something. And uh, they uh, realized this was Lyme disease. Um, but there were too many patients who were getting sick that were, you know, they, they're apparently okay. Their rash cleared up. They're fine. But there were way too many people sick. And so uh, some of the treatments that were started back then weren't working for the more chronic group, or at least it was hard to uh, take on someone with that complexity. So I think that uh, a lot of the leaders in, in Lyme hesitated in making the transition from acute early disease to chronic. And then you start getting doctors like myself who said, I can't wait. My patients can't wait. The literature can't wait. We've got to do better than this. And so you'll get this uh, group of doctors that, uh, that I got to know who, um, who want to move it forward. And then you get the group that, well, why don't we just focus on an acute disease and you get this uh, divide and it becomes a great Grand Canyon, and uh, they did a couple trials at the beginning where they said, hey, why don't we just figure this all out with a NIH-sponsored trial? But uh, when they said, hey, you get treatment or placebo, and we'll figure it out, bring it, bring it on. Um, but who wants to, when they're that sick, be in a study where you're, you're getting placebo? So they did get some people, but the study at Columbia 
they were sick nine years on average before they got the study. So they based a lot of their conclusions on people who had been sick nine years, and not just sick nine years, they were had already failed uh, three previous treatments. And so you get um, kind of skewed results. Um, and then they said, oh, let's say it didn't work. So therefore, let's not treat, let's assume that it's damage done, it's post-treatment, uh, it's uh, gotta be something. And uh, so that that group goes in that direction and there's a small group that can go in my direction. And, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, persistent infection is common enough. I've had enough success with persistent infection, treating persistent infection. My favorite treatment, of course, is, uh, is something called Babesia treatment because that's a parasite. And the intravenous therapy trials never treat for Babesia. So it's always possible that the reason the intravenous wasn't as successful is not just they were sick for nine years, not just that they had failed treatment, but there's no evidence they were um, treated some of the co-infections like Babesia. And they might've done better with just a pill uh, for Babesia and so I find that uh, I don't really go to intravenous antibiotics very often. I found a lot of other paths. Um, I try to get people in sooner, take it on ser seriously. I have plenty of patients who are kind of champions. You know, they don't want to be sick. Uh, they encourage others to get on with treatment, uh, help them navigate treatment. Uh, that's why the title of the book was uh, referring to na helping navigate Lyme disease because there's more than one path to get better. And uh, so what are some of the paths to get there? Because you have to get better. You can't stay that sick for that long. One of the things that really surprises me about the work that you've done, <clears throat> you've been doing this for a really long time, and there's something that you're able to see and as a result do to have a real impact on these patients where I think most people would have said, or most doctors and most patients wouldn't have thought that it was possible for them to feel as much better as they did as a result of treatment. What do you, what do you attribute your ability to treat people for such a long time to with really great results? Well, I, I um, look back uh, when I went to medical school and at the University of Minnesota, there was a lot of learn this. Uh, there were thought leaders that said, learn this, uh, and uh, this is how you practice medicine, and uh, wait for a thought leader, wait for a leader to say, let's do it this way. Then, just as medical school finished, I uh, ended up taking a master's in public health in the field of epidemiology. So what epidemiologists does is say, well, Yes, those are protocols, but who knows if they're right? Who knows if they're accurate? It's almost everything that's out there has some nuance, something not right. So I kind of was able to do the marriage of my patients in my practice. And as an epidemiologist, what's published? What is it that we're seeing that might not be how the, the article states it? What is the what is the kernel of truth in there? And then even if you decide, and even if I decide that's, that article should be different, is that since nothing's completely right, 
being able to modify my protocols, change protocols, not get stuck on protocols is uh, is important. So it's that marriage of that epidemiology with the practice that allows me to constantly challenge. I also, you know, not everybody's a fighter. And so it, I never realized on the farm in Minnesota that that in addition to, you know, learning what I can and growing is that that I found I have a little fight in me, a little chutzpah. I think it's a, more than a little. You've been doing this for an awfully long time. And, I, you know, one and actually a couple of the videos, it is shocking to me to see the difference in how people, I, I, I guess the word is walk through the world, that are experiencing, you know, full-on symptoms versus what is able to happen as a result of proper treatment. It, it's it's really powerful. Well, I have a lot of people who do well. So when doctors say they have patients who do well and they get better with four weeks of treatment, is I have those patients also. But uh, you know, I have some patients that are sick year after year. But most everybody falls between. They just need a um, a better protocol, a more persistent protocol, and some other kind of approach. And so that's what keeps me young. Is that you know, it's I start out my day, you know, looking forward to um, maybe writing, you know, something else in the evening, learning something new in a podcast. But by about ten. Uh, those patients that I have, you know, I, I still love, uh, well, where are you? Where are you going? What do you want to accomplish? I, I find that instead of just a protocol is that, that I really want to get to know you. Uh, I want to know how it's affected you, what has affected you, what's your family done, what they think, how you got to that spot. So rather than focusing on supplements, you know, I focus on you and that's, um, that's been very rewarding. If they really want supplements, I, I have them go to somebody that does that. But I, I find that time's precious, that one-on-one -on -one with individuals. And it, I think it helps with the recovery if, if I can get them away from a, like, a persistent uh, or a, uh, almost like a PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder um, situation. And how do you get them from there to... Uh, back to work, back to school, especially the kids that, you know, I encourage them to keep in school so they can keep something in their control, but they can be so um, ill, so troubled uh, with everything you can think of. And, you know, they're written off as um, psych cases, OCD cases, ADHD cases, uh, delinquent cases, and so, um, it's easy for them to get lost for five, 10 years before they realize there's, there's a treatable problem. What do you think it is that you see when somebody walks through the door that other doctors don't, that, that triggers you to say, oh my, there's a good chance or it's worth looking into whether this is Lyme disease versus kind of the, the default you know, it's OCD or, you know, some, some other issue. Well, I think that, uh, oftentimes the, that Lyme has become too hot a subject. And so it's, uh, people have, as doctors have been, you know, 
not sure of whether they should go there. The patients have gotten frustrated with the doctor, and so you get a somebody that doubts their doctor and the doctor who doubts the, the patient, and right off the bat, there's three or four sentences into the discussion, you don't really get to know the whole patient. And uh, it's so much easier in an HMO type or managed care type to just say, oh, well, you have a cardiologist, let's go to the, you have a heart, let's go to cardiologist, you've got a headache, how about neurology? You've got stomach GI. And so by the time you walk out, they'll say, well, let's do all that stuff and we don't want to hear about Lyme or I don't even go there. You know, I often use the expression that there's two things you can count on in life, you know, death, taxes, and you don't have Lyme. Uh, and, and that kind of leaves, uh, it's, it certainly doesn't get a nice discussion going and two sentences into it, they're already like steering you off in the direction of a specialist. And I think that the groups often, you know, they have, um, you know, certain, uh, certain habits of referral from the primary. And uh, sometimes if you're sick, we'll go to the ER, go to the urgent care center, and you're left with, well, uh, can I finish the conversation? So it doesn't take very long before uh, the patient uh, is already frustrated. It, I was going to say earlier that it strikes me you're the, the example of a doctor who is doing art and science. It really is an art, and and it's and the thing that you've said a couple of times it really hits me is that a big part of that art is is just listening, isn't it? Yeah, I think that um, that how to cool down everybody and uh, take on uh, the conversation. It's usually people with Lyme are not in between. They either are fine or they're quite sick. So if you um, if you get the rhythm down, I'm I'm surprised at how um, how much time I got available for counseling uh, during a visit. You know, doctors are kind of rushed; they feel rushed. But uh, all you really need to do is just figure out how to get the process started. I find that uh, that doctors overestimate how Lyme takes time when you just get the rhythm down, take care of them, and uh, and you can do it right from whether you're a specialist or a primary. You just uh, how do you get away from just running the other way to uh, taking them on? And, and are you saying that a lot of doctors think that if they treat Lyme disease, it's going to be a long-term thing? Is that what you mean? And that they have a tendency not to want to deal with that? Or well, there's, a, there's sure. some things that are, you know, that, that are in that question. One is that, that, you know, you're so used to having patients be healthy, they have hypertension and diabetes, and nothing's going to happen for 20 years. So they get 20 years of tinkering and nothing. But you've got a Lyme patient where they're sick now. They're probably the worst they've ever imagined being. And so right off the bat, it's a very dynamic situation. Uh, and the second thing is that is that communications, um, you know, you know, remember I was attracted to the biological, the psychological, the social, the chronicity is that, that, you know, I have so much turnover. So just because that's, uh, that's in, in there, 
you know, as soon as they start getting better, it's always like a lot easier to take care of them and, and they graduate. So I always have a lot of room in my practice because people graduate, they get better, they get their wings and they move on. They don't forget what they went through, but they move on. So it's a, uh, that's a, you know, a, a here and now issue um, in your face right now. And so doctors uh, are not used to that. They're used to saying, well, okay, we'll see you in six months or three months. And then, uh, but if you're sick now, it's like, a t it's almost like a take charge situation to do it right. Let, let's talk for a, a minute or two about patient symptoms, symptoms that the patients have that they may not be attributing to Lyme disease. What are some of the things that a patient that is having some kind of symptoms are not able to kind of get their arms around it? What are some of the things that they should be thinking of from your standpoint? Well, right now, when they first come in, it's uh, they mostly focus on the symptoms and they're kind of linked. They're, they seem to be related to an overreaction, over-responsive immune system to the infection. So there's not that much of an infection there, it's just the immune system is so powerful, it's so engaged, and so you end up um, almost like a tired, wired state. Which, so fatigue is the dominant issue. Wired means your sleep isn't very good, but all of that, um, that fight or flight stuff means every mood button is turned up to high. So they have every mood button you can think of, you know, but instead of just sadness and anxiety, there's often despair. They, they have, um, you know, often a pressure in the head. Uh, there's something called the autonomic nervous system, which is dependent on the immune. So they get lightheaded, their stomach is off, uh, their sensory systems often turn up to high just like you would in a fight or flight. So they're more sensitive to light, to sound, to touch, to heat, to cold. And so, um, you know, joint pain, even though people talk about it, it's not near as much issue for a lot of these patients than everything else. And it, because they're connected, they'll come in waves. So you go from crappy to crappiest, you know, from crappy, crappier to crappiest in, in a very short period. And so that's a, it's a, it's a tough road if you're a patient, and if you're a doctor, it's a tough to watch a patient uh, go through that. The other thing that strikes me about this disease is one that I never knew about until I did the background on, on our conversation, is that there is a big psychological com component to this. Talk a little bit about that and, and how that develops and, and how you deal with it. Well, there seems to be two types of psych issues. One is that the illness itself seems to push every psychiatric condition you can think of. So I always think of it as a uh, the neurotransmitters push the mood button up so you can be sad, angry to the point of rage and despair. And there's a doctor in in uh, New Jersey, Dr. Bransfield, who says he even sees uh, some suicidal and homicidal issues. Um, they don't have, they don't act out, but it's every emotion you can think of. And, it, and so some of it is they have that, but it's up and down. So every time it flares up, every time it goes down, it goes down fast. And so they tend to use this word called Herxheimer, 
They borrow the word from the flare-up you get when you treat syphilis. <laughs> so they, they even use the word herx as a, a, a verb, you know, they just because they want something to describe the severity. But there's the next issue is the sick and tired of being sick and tired. Because if you've been sick for a long time, you know, that's what counseling gets into, what it's like to be the, there. And also, just like doctors are divided, patients are often divided. Um, because the grandpa says this, and the aunt says that, their sister says that, their friend says that. And so uh, they're at war over whether they should do Lyme or just call it psychiatric or just call it malingering something. And so um, doctors are deeply divided, but families are too. And so the part of counseling is to how do you deal with an illness where uh, the family's at war over you. Now, when they get better, gradually, you know, family buys into it. But uh, there's always still someone that says, nope, I heard that chronic Lyme doesn't exist, that chronic Lyme is nothing more than aches and pains of living, that they're all uh, having psychiatric problems, it's mass hysteria, or they just have chronic fatigue, they just have fibromyalgia. And if you can't accept that, then you have a psychiatric problem and you should go see a psychiatrist. Um, but then they say, well, what do I do with my pain and my head pressure, my chest pressure, that stomach pain, et cetera. Uh, it's not very satisfying when you're left with so few paths. Let's move to the book. Your book is an expert's guide on navigating Lyme disease. Tell everybody a little bit about your book and, and kind of your goal for writing it. My goal um, uh, at the beginning is was to continue to have an, a vehicle, an opportunity to express uh, my experiences and share what I read. Because there's so many great researchers publishing things. As an epidemiologist, I know what good and not so good and what's weak about that article. You know, there's always something in that article, some pearls. Uh, but since I often put them on my blogs and my newsletter, um, I, I find like Facebook the problem with Facebook is that it's fascinating when you read it, and I enjoy writing it, but it it drops within a day to maybe two days where, where is that? Um, even blogs, you know, they, they're they no longer on your page. Uh, they're on the page somewhere. And so I found when I have new patients is that even if they read one or two blogs, they, they, the way internet works is that you're already off to the next tangent and the next link and the next thought and the next. And so you never really get the range, the entirety. So by the time I got to 600 uh, blogs and 62 podcasts, you know, it just seemed like I have patients who kind of get lost and they still don't understand the range of what's out there, what the range has published. And I, and I wanted to have a sit down where, you could sit down when you're beginning to be sick, or at least you can tell grandpa that, well, if you read this book, you know, you can see what I'm talking about. You can get a good start. Since it's uh, over 500 pages, I I, uh, I use a particular style where each page is a sep reflects a separate blog. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and the blog, but that's uh, tricky because uh, 
you know, how do you go from topic to topic and let it flow? And so that I enjoyed the process of uh, shifting from blogs to, you know, a unit. And that, that was a, uh, that was fascinating and it worked out. One of the things that I, I noticed is that the book starts with five pretty brief videos and they're geared to helping family and friends to understand what's up with Lyme disease. How did you decide to include that? I think it's fascinating that family and friends is such an important part of this. Well, I, I produced those four minute videos uh, four or five years ago. And, you know, patients like them, you know, that I refer to patients who find it on, on the web, but you know, the four, you know, represent, you know, diagnostic issues, uh, symptom, you know, co-infections, um, those type of issues, but they're, they're made so beginner family could really understand it, they could understand it. But how do you get those where they're readily accessible when you're sick and panicky at night and those kind of things? It just felt a good way to just take something I already had and a case study that I had and uh, put it right front and center. And, and instead of getting into the, you know, the half a book of like facts and everything else is how do you get right down to um, um, a comfortable way to communicate, you know, to a, a patient, even doctors, you know, sometimes uh, better to get the process started, you know, even if the doctors already knows all that, which they often do, where can they steer their patients so they can start that journey? And uh, four videos later, 16 minutes later, they, they have some foundation. It's like an elevator speech, you know, you're supposed to be able to tell you, um, your pitch everything and your understanding of Lyme and by the time the elevator gets to the top. So this is a, where do you begin the process? The other thing that I'm impressed by is your desire and inclusion of links that help readers to find more, get to more references uh, about it. And I think, if I understand correctly, to be able to kind of communicate uh, with you through different means. Is that right? Yeah, that was um, interesting that, you know, because I haven't seen it done before, because I would take a scientific article, which had maybe 5,000 words, 4,000 words, bring it down to a blog that was 400 words, hmm. where you take the pearls, the things that, you know, I get out of it. If I get out of it and it helps my patients that I have in my practice that day, well, that's a, uh, uh, that's worth discussing it. But, you know, as I get older and I look and I think is that I have to get pretty close to, um, to my iPhone. And I decided, well, instead of always going every page to a new article and then you pinch, you, know, you try to pull it out is what size font could I see on an iPhone and get to know Lime without always having to like squint. <laughs> um, so. I ended up with 22 font instead of 12 font, which is goes against every recommendation of uh, of people who publish. But it works on an iPhone. It's a beautiful thing that you just flip from page to page to page to page, uh, and each page reflects a blog. But the answer to your question is that you can't do much with 100 words. So if someone 
can't figure it out from the title, can't figure it out from 100 words, you click, you click uh, read more and you go right to the blog. And the blog yeah. says, well, right, that's a start, but you can go right to the research article too and dig in deeper. And so it's a, it's a, you know, I don't see any other books that have the same style, but it was kind of fun and novel to take those blogs and, uh, you know, walk uh, my patients to that level. I have two final questions for you. When you think about your experience over the last 30 plus years, the articles you've written, the books you've written, what do you want doctors to know? Well, I told you about the stepping stones is that, that if whenever a doctor decides, and often it might be they're getting sick, their colleague, a family member, is that I wanted to have enough stones set there. So, you know, I could share what I've read, what I've, uh, under, how I've understood it. Uh, you know, that's an awful lot of articles to read. And so it's a, I just, one at a time, all of a sudden it adds up over time to uh, a lot of stepping stones. So it's a, it's a good starter for patients, families, but it's particularly important for when that doctor or PA, a nurse practitioner, uh, uh, any of the other uh, practitioners that uh, when they want to start the process, they can get a, get there instead of getting lost in the, in the internet. Final question. What do you want patients and their families to know? Well, I, I think that there's so much we understand about Lyme. And when you hear that there's nothing you can do is that there is plenty you can do. And there's plenty of people who get better and try not to get caught too much into all the tangents. And so, you know, I, I find that I look at it as a, a persistent infection. And so it's easy to forget that, uh, that it might be an infection that should look a second time or maybe treat Babesia. And so don't get lost in a system. Uh, don't forget that uh, my view is that a persistent infection is there and not to worry because there's so many publications that are and so many researchers filling in their own building blocks, their own uh, stepping stones. And so there's a, it's a complicated problem, but uh, we're capable of doing it. So I'm, I just want to um, uh, wish everybody all the well on their journey. Well, what I want to say is I am genuinely impressed with the depth of knowledge that you have combined with the depth of understanding of both doctors who are struggling to figure this out and, and probably just as or more importantly, helping somebody, a patient who thought that this was something that could never be taken care of and turns out that they can live a, a normal life. And if you go take a look at some of the videos and see how some of these patients um, walked through the world with it and then after, it is it is mind-boggling to me. And I, I just congratulate you for all you've done on that. And thank you for sharing your time with me. It's been my pleasure. Dr. Daniel Cameron, MD, MPH, you're an internist and epidemiologist in private practice in Mount Kisco, New York. You're the author of An Expert's Guide on Navigating Lyme Disease. And you can be found at Instagram, at Dr. Daniel Cameron, on Facebook, Daniel Cameron, MD, Twitter, Dr. Daniel Cameron, 
and YouTube, Daniel Cameron, MD. And finally, on the web, DanielCameronMD.com. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this and to really make a huge difference in a disease that I think most people don't think is, is got much of a chance for cure. Thanks again for being here.